Creative Babble. Hey, Rebecca, have you ever thought about cults being a lot like businesses and the way they operate and the way they run? Yeah, actually, I have, Javier. I think about this a lot. And oftentimes when a cult goes down, it's because somebody followed the money. Yeah, if you think about it, most cults are legal operations. You know, they have tax exempt status. They follow the pattern of businesses. Some of them start out like startups. You know, they they raise money, they create a movement, and then after a while, they kind of start becoming these mature organizations where they have middle management and people that report to them, and some of them go big and become institutions, and then some of them go under. Yeah, and going under could mean Maybe the leader leaves, quote unquote, be it for prison or something far darker and more ominous. It just really depends on the business or cult. So today we're going to talk about the business of cults. I'm Javier Leva with the Pretend Podcast. And I'm Rebecca Sebastian from the Dialogue Podcast. And over the next three episodes, Javier and I are going to talk to experts about their insights on cults, former cult members. And Rebecca and I are probably going to go visit some of these businesses that are run by cults. Yeah, so hopefully you'll hear back from us after that happens. We're a little nervous. (laughs) Hopefully we'll make it to episode three. Rebecca, so we can't have a cult without the cult leader, right? So what what are some of the things that we think about when we think about cult leaders? Well, typically cult leaders are charismatic, narcissistic, controlling, manipulative. I mean, they have the ability to control large groups of people and they usually do this through some type of coercive control. Another stereotype is that cult leaders are overwhelmingly male, which, you know, it is true. But actually, from my experience, I did a whole series on a cult that's run by women. That's true. I mean, there is no monopoly on egomaniacs. (laughs) My audience knows too well that the cult that I covered in season three with the Word of Faith Fellowship cult, if you ask anybody in that cult, the cult leader is a female and everybody under her who's in control is a female as well. 
Yes, and Dialogue listeners might remember a gal named Credonia who burned hundreds of her followers alive after her doomsday prediction failed to come about. Yikes. I guess man or woman, the real question is, are cult leaders as smart as we think they are? Hmm. Well, I had the chance to talk to linguist and author Amanda Montel about her book Cultish, and she has some great insight on this. Our interpretation of cult leaders is that they are these evil masterminds, these geniuses with a plan from the beginning to like brainwash and destroy people. But they're not. (laughs) But again, like this is something that you'll see with most Silicon Valley CEOs. What is it like? It's like one in five CEOs has been found to be a psychopath. So yeah, I mean, we think of them as these evil geniuses, but they're not exactly that, or they tend not to be exactly that. These folks are opportunists Mm -hmm. who set out with a promise that they truly believe will solve the world's most urgent problems. Like, why would anybody be attracted to a leader who was promising, like, evil and destruction? I mean, these, th- these, these groups tend to start out pretty harmless or even positive. Yeah, it's true. Even Jim Jones, you know, who's responsible for poisoning almost a thousand of his own followers, including 300 children was not always known as this maniacal figure. In fact, in the beginning, he was heavily involved in promoting Christian socialism, and he had one of the first integrated congregations during the civil rights movement. That's why people followed him. They, he didn't start the pitch with mass suicide. Yeah, that would be a tough sell. I mean, could you imagine how much good these leaders could do for the world if they would just channel their influence and talents towards something positive? I mean, I have a not-so-popular theory that cult leaders are just misguided artists, sometimes. I mean, let's look at Charles Manson, for example. The white supremacist evil icon that we talk about today, he used to just be a struggling artist who actually demonstrated some talent. Now, oh yes, he was also a lifelong criminal who allegedly burned his school down at age nine, but when he started forming his cult, the family, in the mid-60s, he was also a singer-songwriter who'd managed to get the attention of Dennis Wilson, one of the Beach Boys. He actually wrote a song, Javier, that the band would later release on their album 2020. That is so interesting because I I didn't know the side of him. Well, yeah, not many people do, but their band and the marketing team, let's just say they lightened it up a bit. Manson's version was called Cease to Exist, and it was dark. Cease to exist Just come and say you love me Give up your work Come on, you can't be I'm your kind But the version the Beach Boys actually released was called Never Learn Not to Love and had a much more mainstream sound. Javier, which one do you like better? You know, Rebecca, I hate to say this, but I kind of like Charles Manson's version better. I mean, it's dark, it's moody. 
Javier, I knew we were friends and meant to collaborate. I take no pleasure in admitting it either, but I also prefer Manson's version. Don't worry. This is a safe space, Rebecca. (laughs) Cult leaders may not be the evil geniuses that we think they are, but there's no denying that cult leaders have this je ne sais quoi about them. They have these amazing instincts and they know how to seize the moment. It's true. I mean, they would make killer CEOs and entrepreneurs and rock stars, apparently, if only they'd avoided race war conspiracies and commanding people to murder. Yeah, what a shame. <laughs> what a waste of talent. <laughs> okay, listening to that music was really fun. Uh, I want to do another game. This one is trivia. I'm going to play you a clip of somebody speaking. You're going to tell me if it's a cult leader or a CEO. Ooh, okay. This should be easy, right? Because CEOs aren't insane right (laughs) it should be javier let's let's take a listen we're going to talk to you about the most urgent thing that is on our mind and what we suspect is the most urgent thing on the minds of those who will connect with us your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us planet earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us. At first, I wasn't sure, but that last part sounds like a cult. I mean, that is definitely, hands down, a cult leader. Yeah, I think the whole evacuating Earth part is a dead giveaway. That was definitely a cult leader. The voice you were listening to is none other than Marshall Applewhite, the co-founder of Heaven's Gate. And he videotaped this farewell message before he and 39 members of Heaven's Gate committed a mass suicide in 1997. Mm. Okay, let's hear another one. And once you have a family, you start taking risks, not just for yourself, but for your family as well. It gets much harder to uh, do things that might not work out. Um, so now is the time t- to do that before you before you have those obligations. So I would I would encourage you to take risks now. Do something bold. You won't regret it. Hmm. This is why this game is hard, you know, because the language in all these clips raises the stakes so high. There's no chill with these people, right? <laughs> it's always all or nothing. A heightened sense of urgency, and as culty as this sounds. I'm going to say this is a CEO. Well done. You are right. This is the Mars-minded billionaire, Elon Musk. Okay, I'm going to try and stump you on this one. Here we go. Is this a cult leader or CEO? If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. We're ready to go. If you tell us we have to give our lives now, we're ready. I'm pretty sure all of the sisters and brothers are with me. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, this is this is a cult. I mean, Uh, you're right. That was Jim Jones, the infamous cult leader whose order claimed the lives of 909 members, which you mentioned earlier, included 300 children. Okay, let's let's do one more. For the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon 
is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death. So what do you think? Hmm. Gosh, it does sound a little culty. I mean, there's a lot of death talk in that one. Hmm. I don't know. I want to say it's a cult leader. Wrong. That is Steve Jobs. Though some might say, correct, that is Steve Jobs, because he himself and Apple have a cult following. But this does bring to mind Adam Newman, CEO of WeWork. Yeah, I just finished watching the WeWork documentary on Hulu, and it was incredible. I mean, can we play a little bit of the trailer? I thought you'd never ask. The next revolution is the We Revolution. Adam Newman sounded like a mythical figure, but it was a lot of smoke and mirrors. When somebody tells you they're changing the world and you are helping them do that, it feels really special. The future is about being part of something greater than yourself. I believed every word that came out of Adam's mouth. Adam told me I was going to be a millionaire. This guy is incredible. He was this generation's Jim Jones. But instead of mass suicide, he was leading his employees and his investors into a tailspin. He was just spending money left and right, driving his company into the ground. And in the end, he pulled his parachute and let everything crash. I'm actually really surprised that WeWork is still a business today. Yeah. And Javier, I'm part of the reason why. Now, I haven't drank the WeWork Kool-Aid, but I'm a happy WeWork member in New York City, and I do enjoy the complimentary kombucha on tap. (laughs) I'm telling you, people were just clamoring to see him. I just met somebody in my actual WeWork office, a lawyer who got an office in the early days of WeWork, and he was on the tour with the property manager. And he was talking about a guy who was following them on this interview saying, look at this amazing exposed brick. Look at these views. This He was just like behind him, them the whole time? Yeah, just wasn't part of the group, but was sort of attaching himself to it. And the guy I'm talking to is like, who is this guy? So he eventually left and he asks the person, the tour guide, who was that? And they said, that was Adam Newman. He created this. Isn't it amazing how much time we just got to spend with him? I mean, if that doesn't sort of cement this idea of CEO as cult leader, I don't know what does. Yeah, I, this guy is so full of himself. Yeah. And as we learned in that little trivia game we just did, cult leaders and CEOs, they use very similar language. Join the movement. One big family. We're connected. You're never alone. I mean, it goes on and on. Yeah, and endless talks of blessing and blessed to be part of this community and helping families and bless this and bless that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is very true. And let's not forget life coaches, all right? I looked this up on Google, by the way, and now I'm just getting Tony Robinson ads everywhere. Oh, so annoying. Worst. Anyone promising you a simple fix to make your life better? I mean, there's nothing wrong with a little motivation, but sometimes these guys are just riding the line, aren't they? Yeah, the bottom line. I think money motivates them far more than solving any of our quote unquote life problems. And, you know, let's just assume that they're starting with good intentions, right? What, at what point does the cult leader go from this altruistic person to someone who grows into this unchecked dictator? 
I don't know, but maybe it's the point where they recognize the power they have. As more people become attracted to the group, the leader becomes more power hungry. And maybe they do have some personality disorder or megalomania. I don't know. I think it's different from cult leader to cult leader, but they become fueled by that power. They chase the power, however it manifests, however fast it comes. And a lot of them, most of them, don't have the restraint to scale back or reevaluate before things spin out of control and become violent before it's too late. I mean, yeah, when you hear that, I guess it would be pretty hard to scale back once you realize you wield enough power to have people kill on your behalf the way Manson did. Or the power to convince hundreds of people to cause their own death by drinking the Kool-Aid. It was Flavor Aid, by the way. Yeah, but you can't talk about Jonestown and the Manson murders without talking about their members. I've been involved in a number of cults, both as a leader and a follower. You have more fun as a follower, but you make more money as a leader. That's Creed from The Office. Leave it to Creed to perfectly capture the essence of this conversation. Yeah, that clip is hysterical. It's one of my favorites, and but it really stuck with me because not only because he's one of the best characters from The Office, but because if you had a choice, of course you'd rather be the cult leader, right? Why would anyone want to be the cult member? Because when we think about cult members, we tend to think of them as sheep, hopeless fools who follow their leaders blindly into poverty, destruction, and, and sometimes even death. But is that really the case? I don't think so. I've done a lot of reporting on cults, and that description just doesn't match the cult members I've met. In 2020, I spoke to Frank Lyford, a decades-long member and survivor of Heaven's Gate. This is a really smart guy who turned down a huge opportunity at Microsoft to stay loyal to the cult. We moved to, to Dallas, and I ended up working for Microsoft in their sales office. I was an assistant to the the regional sales manager who was being promoted to national sales manager. And he, he asked me to go with him to, to Redmond, Washington. And of course I was in a cult and I, so I gave the excuse that no, my wife can't leave her, her job here. So, so I have to quit. But, you know, that would have changed my financial outlook drastically. And here's Amanda Montell again with her take on cult members. But more importantly, our stereotypes of cult followers are that they are desperate, disturbed, intellectually deficient, brainwashed, mind-controlled minions. But again, why would a cult want someone like that? Right, they want right. someone who is bright and service-oriented and well-connected who has, you know, a network of people to tap that so that they'll become involved, who have money to spare, who have the sort of idealism and in a lot of ways privilege that when things inevitably turn sour, they're not going to break down right away. Right. Javier, I'll be the first to admit, I would probably have said yes to an invitation to a group that was offering a way to be my best self and improve my life, especially if someone I admired and respected asked me. It's true. When you join a cult, you're not just joining a cult. Some estimates claim that there are 10,000 active cults in the U.S. today. And I don't know how true that number is, 
but it's really not that hard to believe because I could almost guarantee you that none of them have the word cult in their sales pitch. They're promising spiritual or religious salvation or an exercise machine. And I am in the cult of Peloton. (laughs) Exactly. And the leaders really target their demographic by tailoring their message to resonate with a specific type of person. I mean, Heaven's Gate appealed to science-oriented people with an affinity for life beyond this planet. Nexium. Which we'll we'll cover later on in the series. Yeah. Yeah, They preyed on people's desire to be their best selves in order to affect positive change in the world. Yeah, I guess the road to hell and a cult leader status is paved with good intentions. So it isn't crazy to think that many of the most notorious leaders began like hopeful entrepreneurs, wanting to create something good or fix a problem. Here's what one of the leading experts on cults and founder of the Cult Education Institute, Rick Allen Ross, told us. Do you think most cult leaders start with good intentions? Well, I think that uh, someone that is narcissistic is a sociopath or a psychopath, which many cult leaders fit that profile. They may in their own mind think that they have good intentions. They certainly will say that. But I think their motivation is power, control, uh, personal wealth. Rick gave the example of Charles Deidre with the Synanon cult. Well, that may have been the case with Charles Diedrich. Diedrich started a group called Synanon, which was a drug rehabilitation program in California. He was a, a AA guy. He was a, a recovering alcoholic. And I think he wanted to help people. But as the community built into a multi-million dollar empire and Diedrich had no meaningful accountability, You know what they say, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Diedrich became a very abusive, uh, horribly destructive cult leader. So how about the psychological methods between a cult leader and a con artist? What are the differences in the methods deployed to sort of achieve that same manipulation? Well, you know, it can, again, be seen as a bait and switch con. The con artist tells somebody, hey, you're going to get rich from this. Invest with me. And it turns out to be a Ponzi scheme or the cult leader who says, I have this philosophy, this belief system. Um, I'm channeling a higher power. And if you follow me, I can I can take away all of your problems. I can help you to be a better person. So initially, There's the bait, the enticement, the lure of of some kind of positive incentive. And then once you become involved, you you slowly are, are being immersed deeper and deeper under that individual's control, under the group's control. The difference between a con artist and a cult leader is, and this was told to me by the psychologist Margaret Singer, is that a con artist cons a group of people, an individual, and then they take the money and run. A cult leader cons the same people indefinitely. And so that's that's how cult leaders operate. You know, for me, it's really hard to see the difference between a cult leader and a con artist because cults are just a different flavor of a con. Both cult leaders and con artists are so convincing. And when you're caught in that cyclone, it's really hard to see things clearly. Do you think it's actually true belief at the heart of a cult leader? Well, I think that many of them understand that they're lying and that they're playing a game. 
For example, Jay-Z Knight, who runs the Rantha School of Enlightenment in Yelm, Washington, she would take breaks from channeling this 35,000-year-old spirit from the lost continent of Atlantis called Ramtha. And when she did some of these breaks, people said it seemed like she was faking, that she could snap in and out of this persona, and that it was an act. And I think uh, a lot of the people that I've witnessed, the cult leaders that I've witnessed, seem to understand that they're running a con, that they're running a scam. I have to agree. I, I think that deep down inside, they know what they're doing, and they intentionally manipulate people's emotion just to get their way. But I have to tell you, Rebecca, I spent the day inside the Word of Faith Fellowship, which is a cult in Western North Carolina. And I sat down and interviewed the cult leader for more than an hour in her office. And my goal was to walk out of there thinking, does Jane Whaley really believe the message that she's dishing out? I mean, this woman has a list of rules that goes on for days, rules that are meant to break people and take away their individual freedoms. Something as simple as not drinking soda was not allowed. And yet, I heard rumors that she had a secret stash of Cokes in her office fridge. Now, I don't know if any of that is true, but to me, it's an indication of do as I say, not as I do. But in the end, I actually do think that she believes that she's the prophet with direct communication to God. And that's what's truly terrifying about her. Because once a cult leader believes their own bullshit, then God only knows what they're capable of. Exactly. And the rules never apply to them. Now, where, where it gets dangerous is when they actually believe their own hype, because then they can they go into a kind of alternate reality, a fantasy world where they can have paranoid delusions and lead their followers into a tragedy. So that would describe David Koresh at the end. And uh, it, it seemed to me in the beginning, he was a con man, but at the end, he believed his own hype. And it ended with the, the deaths of many people, including Koresh and his followers in the compound at the time. And of course, Jim Jones, uh, Marshall Applewhite, I think they began to believe their own storyline. And as a result, they saw no limits to what they could do or how horribly they could hurt their people. Okay, Javier, are you ready for my hot take? Yeah, hit me. I think every cult is really just a brand. In fact, look at even the term corporate culture. That was not talked about in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. That is a relatively new term businesses are adopting to create some kind of environment that we're supposed to be all excited about. Like it isn't just a job. It's more than that, right? It literally has the word cult in culture, corporate culture, corporate cult. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I've worked at corporations and I've hired people. And, you know, one when you're hiring somebody, eventually somebody's going to say, do you think this person is a good fit? You know, and not only could that that phrase be discriminatory for excluding people, minorities and women, but it also means what, what does that mean? Is it a good fit? Is this person like me? Are we trying to create an army of the same types of people, somebody that will not challenge the institution? It really does seem to imply that. And a brand isn't just a name. It's the way the company's perceived. 
it's not just a logo or a clever tagline. It's like the core essence and the feelings people have when interacting with it. I mean, Rebecca, you and I work in marketing and we know how powerful brands are and how it could give us a real competitive advantage, right? Yeah, and cults know this too. Cult members are immersed in practices and routines. They know the mission statement, the talking points around the cult by heart. I mean, remember, you and I see Heaven's Gate as a destructive organization that took the lives of 39 people. They saw themselves as a group of like-minded people hell-bent on exiting Earth to get to the next realm. I mean, take the Manson family. They even had a similar physical look among members. And I would say that that late 1960s culty chic aesthetic started with the Manson family. But here's the funny thing about brands. It works the less details you know about the brand. For instance, in 2014, there was a study that found that physicians and pharmacists were more likely to go for the generic brand of a headache medicine than the actual brand name. And that's because they know what's in this stuff. I mean, it's the same thing. You know, you could, the generic, if you look at the ingredients, it's the same as the big brand. So in theory, if cult followers knew all the details about the cult up front, they probably wouldn't join one. The reasons why they're joining the cult in the first place is nothing like the reality of the actual organization. Yes. And once they're in, they are in. So much time has been invested to that point. It's really hard to get out. You know, this podcast is about the business of cults. Whether a cult leader is consciously or subconsciously modeling their organization after a business, well, that's debatable, right? But one thing is for sure. Cults are really, really, really good at influencing and changing behavior. So instead of cults modeling themselves after businesses, what if the companies were actually modeling themselves after cults? Whoa, head exploding over <laughs> here. Yes, I can think of a lot of companies just off the top of my head who have a cult-like following. I mean, Apple, we're both working on Apple machines right now. Lululemon leggings, Teslas, the Starbucks I'm drinking as we talk. Let's play this iconic Apple commercial. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits. The rebels. The troublemakers the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Okay, but this ad is all about being an independent thinker and not following the masses. Isn't that the exact opposite of the way cults operate? Hmm. I'm going to let Douglas Atkins explain. Douglas is a former head of community at Airbnb. And I've come, I'm calling it the great cult paradox. And I call it that because it's contradictory to one's expectations. So the reason people join cults is not to conform, but to become more individual. 
The reason people join cults is not to conform, which is the common perception, but to become more individual. Well, how is that possibly true? Interesting. So it's not the cult leader who lures people in. It's the other way around. The cult leader just creates the space for like-minded people to come together. Exactly. The only difference is that the cult leader then takes advantage of the void that these people are experiencing to satisfy their perverse craving for power. Circling back to brands, there's a lot that we can learn from cults. Here's Douglas Atkins again. So, I mean, there's no functional difference between one brand of sneaker or another, or maybe tiny. But you couldn't tell them that. They were absolutely committed to this brand. Why were these kids so committed to these bits of rubber and plastic? So I thought, you know, they're using religious terms. I'm going to look at best-in-class cult brands like Harley and Apple at the time. And then I thought, why stop there? So what I'm hearing is that advertisers are trying to break down the tactics of extreme cults and decode their secret sauce to implement into their business plan. That's gross. But I think it might be effective. Yes, they're taking what works from cults You know, not the destructive stuff, but they're learning from it and trying to figure out how to change a human's behavior. I almost hesitate to ask, what other tactics do brands borrow from cults? Well, many of these startups who have a cult following tend to have these retreats and these corporate outings. And this is designed to model the indoctrination process that is typically seen in cults. If you can isolate like-minded people and get them away from their families and their friends, you can create this feedback loop. Companies like Airbnb, Yelp, all had or have company retreats. And WeWork, you know, that company that, uh, that Rebecca drinks her free camp- kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> they have retreats that include 24-7 open bars. It was like the fire Festival. But for real, like it's, they actually pulled it off. Lots of sex, games, parties. They totally exhaust their members. And when Adam Newman, the CEO, takes the stage, employees look at him with these googly eyes. I mean, grown men, grown men and women would stare at him with admiration. And he talks about elevating the human consciousness. What the hell does that mean? His business is renting out desks. Yeah, and... For the record, I just rent a desk. I have never been to a Wii retreat. Also, Fire Festival, even in what it should have been, my worst nightmare. But basically, these companies are exploiting our human desire to be unique, but also to belong to something bigger and better than just ourselves. All right, Rebecca, so we just talked about the cult leader and why people follow them and some of the tactics that they use as brands. But now let's get down to business. How do cults recruit their members? Yeah, we're going to talk about going from a startup to a well-oiled machine. Cults, like businesses, sometimes need to franchise. They need an org chart. I'm talking to all you MLM boss babes out there. They need a chain of command. We're going to talk about one of the most corporate cults of them all, Nexium. Nexium, for those of you who don't know, it's a cult that had a smaller secret inner circle sex cult called DAS with masters and slaves and whose members were branded with a cult leader's initials and coerced to have sex with him. And in part two of this series, we're going to talk to the woman who blew the lid on Nexium, Sarah Edmondson, who was a former member of Nexium. 
Well, we called it the we called it a company. Like I thought it was part of an organization. We called it an organization. Called it a company. Like we thought it was that. Exactly. <laughs> and it was structured that way. I mean, as you can hear, Sarah was a former Nexium member and recruiter, but later became a whistleblower, which ultimately led to the cult's demise. The initial invitation is based on a fucking lie. It's not a woman's yeah. group. It's a blackmail MLM pyramid scheme started by a sociopath, limp dick, narcissistic douchebag. Okay. So when is part two of the series coming out? You can find part two next week on both the pretend feed and dialogue feed. Pretend drops on Tuesdays. And dialogue drops on Wednesdays. So make sure you are subscribed and following. Rebecca, it's been so much fun to collaborate with you. I'm so glad we did this. And if you're new to Pretend or to Dialogue, make sure to check out both shows. I think you're going to love it. Absolutely. And until then, everybody, stay safe and try not to join a cult. Yeah, yeah. Just hold off until the end of the series. <laughs> At least. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's not a good idea. All right, so you just listened to part one of The Business of Cults. If you want to listen to part two right now, go to pretendradio.org and hit the donate button. When you become a Patreon member, you get early access to new episodes. Depending on what tier you are, you get stickers, t-shirts, and there's even a tier to co-host a video with me. So that's pretty cool. I also want to tell you some really big news. Mark your calendars because on February 18th, a new season of my other podcast, Criminal Conduct, drops. Now, I have to tell you a little bit of the backstory. On New Year's Day, I was just sitting around, nothing was going on, when all of a sudden I get a message from a friend of mine who says, hey, I could put you in contact with the serial killer that you covered in season two of Pretend. And I was like, what? So over the course of four nights, I have been talking with the serial killer who lives down in Panama. I decided to make this story its own season on criminal conduct because my interview with this guy was just too much to contain to a couple episodes. So go now, subscribe to Criminal Conduct if you haven't already, and mark your calendars because on February 18th, the new season, season three of Criminal Conduct begins. Go check it out. And as always, thank you to Colette Elliott, who put together the collage for the episode you're listening to today. If you like her work, I also made t-shirts so you can buy them. They're amazing. So go check it out. I'll have a link in the show notes. Creative Babble.